Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting April 4th. I'm Steve Mursky, and I hope you like baseball, which returned this week, because that's what we'll be talking about today, with a science angle, of course. And if you don't like baseball, I weep for you. We'll talk to a former Major League pitcher, we'll also talk with an artist whose work hangs in one of the world's great museums, and we'll chat with a geneticist who has also done research into the physics of baseball. And the really interesting thing is, they're all the same guy, Renaissance man Dave Baldwin. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some baseball-related science. Leading off, Dave Baldwin. In 1967, he appeared in 58 games with the Washington Senators, today's Texas Rangers, and posted a very tidy 1.70 ERA. He shagged flies, fruit flies, that is, in the off-seasons, and eventually got a doctorate. I called Baldwin at his home in Yahats, Oregon. Dr. Baldwin, great to talk to you today. Oh, thank you very much, Steve. Tell everybody, first of all, give us the, the, the mini tour of your Major League pitching career. Uh, well, I uh, was called up uh, with the Washington Senators in um, uh, fall of 66, and uh, I was uh, an old man in baseball terms by that time. I was 20, what, 28, and um, then pitched with uh, Washington for three years, and um, uh, then I was traded to the Milwaukee Brewers and uh, then finished up my career a few years later with the Chicago White Sox. I happen to have your lifetime statistics in front of me here. So in uh, 1970, you were with the Brewers. Then 71-72, you weren't in the major leagues. And then you had a brief comeback in 73 with the White Sox. Right. I, I was sold uh, by the Brewers to uh, the Hawaii Islanders. Uh, Hawaii at that time was gearing up to uh, try to go major league, and they were buying ball players out of the majors. And uh, it, it obviously, it didn't work. <laughs> but uh, if one has to be in the minor leagues, Hawaii is not a bad place to do it. Oh, uh, it was the best place to play, majors or minors. Uh, in fact, I I had my highest salary playing for uh, for Hawaii. Why don't you tell everybody what that salary was? Uh, I made eighteen thousand for them. Uh, which was far more than I was making in the majors. <laughs> right, your your high salary in the major leagues had been what? Was fourteen thousand. That let me just make sure everybody hears that correctly. That's fourteen one four thousand dollars a year. Yes, right. Because you know uh, people today might not believe that a major league baseball player was paid only that much just thirty years ago. Uh, yeah, in those days, uh, I mean, you know, obviously uh, the value of the dollar was different, but. In those days, uh, ballplayers uh, had off-season jobs, or their wives did. A lot of times, they married uh, school teachers who who would uh, support them during the uh, the uh, off-season. Right. I think uh, Richie Hebner was famously a grave digger in the off-season. Oh. <laughs> Your manager with the Washington Senators at one point was the the legendary Ted Williams. Oh yes. <laughs> and and you being a pitcher, Ted Williams had sort of a. Uh, I don't think it was a love-hate relationship. I think it was a hate-hate relationship with pitchers. Uh, yes, actually, he considered all pitchers to be just uh, incurably stupid. Ted wanted to get to know his, his pitchers, so he called a meeting. And um, he said, you know, pitchers are the stupidest people alive. He said that, uh, and to prove that, uh, I bet not one of you can tell me what makes a curveball curve. 
Well, you know, all of the pitchers knew what made a curveball curve, <laughs> but all the rest of the pitchers were smart enough not to <laughs> not to say what made a curveball curve. And I, I, you know, I gave the explanation. I, I'd been going to school, so I thought I'd been called on in class or something like that, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I explained, uh, you know, all about the Magnus force and and all the the uh, the forces on the ball that would make it deflect. And I got through, and I thought, well, something's not quite right here. And there was this real awkward silence, you know, as everybody <laughs> contemplated what I had done, because Ted was just, you know, just bursting to give the explanation. And here I'd taken the opportunity away from him right like that. And this is my first interaction with my new boss. And uh, so I was, uh, you know, considering uh, other career options and, so you, you inadvertently proved his point that pitchers really were stupid. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> or at least one of them was, you know. <laughs> and the story goes on, maybe it shouldn't, but I'll go ahead and tell this anyway. In, uh, in July, we were in Yankee Stadium, and uh, that was uh, when the, um, the uh, first landing on the moon, the first, you know, Apollo 11 landed on the moon, and... and uh, there was a, a, a delay in the game, you know, as they announced this, and everybody, uh, you know, standing ovation and so forth. And and uh, we were sitting out in the bullpen, uh, con- you know, considering what these guys were going to do now that they were on the moon, and everybody had, you know, their theory and so forth. And one of the guys, said, one of the relievers, said, uh, said uh, that now they're they're trying to find another pitcher who's dumb enough to explain the curveball to Ted. <laughs> So that was about four months later. Yeah, no, they didn't forget it the whole season, and they didn't let me forget it. <laughs> That's great. So one of the reasons we're we're talking to you is because after your baseball career, you went on and and had a a really interesting scientific career. You, I know you've got a doctorate in genetics. Is it? Yes, it is. Uh, and you also have a an additional master's degree in an engineering. In systems engineering. Systems engineering. So t- tell everybody a little bit about both of those fields and what you did in them. Oh, okay. Well, actually, I uh, have been going to school during the off-season all through those years, and um, I uh, earned my Ph.D. first. This is at the University of Arizona. I earned my Ph.D. first in, in uh, 79, and... Um, and uh, worked uh, there at the university as a assistant researcher, and um, it looked like I wasn't going to get a permanent position for a long, long time. Uh, they were hard to come by, and and uh, I decided, well, I didn't want to get a postdoc uh, because uh, that can go on forever, and it didn't pay very well. And so I I went back, uh, earned my um, master's in systems engineering a few years later also at the University of Arizona, and then um, worked as an engineer for quite a, a number of years. Um, and I didn't get back to baseball or to science for several uh, more years until um, about uh, 2002, I think, 2001, I guess it was. I uh, met a number of uh, uh, researchers uh, who were, you know, physicists and and, uh, and such at uh, universities who were doing research also in baseball. And uh, so we 
formed kind of a, a, a small group here of, uh, of scientists who are actually interested in in uh, what what goes on in, in psychology and physiology and, and physics and baseball. What what exactly can you can you talk about some of the specifics of of what kind of research is going on there? Uh, yeah, most of the research has has uh, been related to. Uh, the pitch ball and, and the batted ball. Uh, what what happens when the bat hits the ball? Um, the you know studying coefficient of restitution of the bat and the ball, uh, the the um, the velocities of the bat and ball, and so forth. And and I've been very interested in what goes on in a in a batter's mind as <clears throat> as the pitch is released and it's on its way to the plate because the batter doesn't have very very long to to think about this. Right, you're not talking about the the psychology of uh, success or failure as much as you are the the actual uh, physiology of reaction. I would take mm-hmm. it, uh, and also the psychology. How how is the the batter able to track the ball? What information does the batter get from from the spin and from the angle of the spin? Uh, as he sees the ball released and that sort of thing, because the batter doesn't, uh, the, the batter has to make his decision within a tenth of a second, uh, you know, uh, of the time that the the ball has been released, um, because he has to start a swing, uh, and he only has four tenths of a second to to uh, to hit the ball, because that's how long it's going to take a 90 mile per hour fastball to get to the to the plate. So. Uh, uh, it looks like the the conscious mind really doesn't have time to make a decision. <laughs> so everything is done um, unconsciously. Based on some small visual cues that they get that they appreciate at some subconscious level. Right. And, and we've discovered that some hitters are not getting the same cues that other hitters are getting. There are some hitters that can't see the spin of the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand. Uh, for example, Mike Schmidt, a very good hitter in the Hall of Fame, uh, said that the, he could never see the, the spin on the ball. And other hitters say, well, they can they can see the ball just fine. They can see the dot on on the uh, slider. Um, so they're they're picking up this uh, with with uh, with better eyesight, I assume, or at least <clears throat> um, better visual acuity than uh, than uh, uh, say a, a Mike Schmidt. Where does any of this uh, research get published? Oh, uh, various places in uh, in academic journals. Um, you know, it, it's it's not easy to find a place to publish a, an article about uh, the, the science of baseball, but uh, we we find it. So now you mentioned uh, Mike Schmidt being in the Hall of Fame. You're also in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Yeah. About the only way I could ever possibly get there. I've got a, a painting that's uh, in the Hall of Fame. Because you are also a, a very talented artist. Thank you. Where did you pick that up? Uh, I started um, uh, getting involved in art, uh, well, I guess, about the mid-60s. I took a course at the University of Arizona in scientific illustration. In fact, I took a couple of courses and uh, really enjoyed scientific illustration, uh, began, you know, very realistic drawings of, um, or uh, hopefully realistic drawings of, of uh, animals and plants and so forth, and uh, just developed from there.
What was the reaction of some of your teammates when they would find out that you were engaged in a lot of these kind of intellectual activities, if any? Uh, it, mostly it was just um, a lack of interest. <laughs> they, they didn't really care. Okay. They knew that I, I read books a lot. Uh, that, that didn't seem to bother them. That's good. A benign uh, indifference. Uh, yeah, tolerance, I guess. <laughs> tolerance. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? More with Dave Baldwin in a moment. Right now, it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four baseball-related items. Only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one. Many pitchers wind up, sorry, having Tommy John surgery, which involves removing a damaged ligament from your throwing arm and replacing it with a tendon harvested from your forearm or even your ankle. Story two, computer simulations indicate that the chance of somebody having a 56-game hitting streak, which Joe DiMaggio actually did in 1941, the chance of somebody actually hitting in 56 straight games at any point in the entire history of baseball is only actually one in eight. Story three, a batted baseball travels further in dry air than in humid air. And story four, studies using the database of Major League Baseball players have found that short men actually live longer than tall men. We'll be back with the answer, but first more with Dave Baldwin. I'd been hearing about a new pitch in baseball and figured that Dr. Dave was the perfect person to ask. They're calling it the gyro ball. Oh, yeah. And I've heard all these things about it's a new kind of pitch. It's completely unhittable. I've heard rumors that it breaks in directions it shouldn't break in. I think I heard somewhere that somebody says it actually breaks twice, which has just got to be impossible. Yeah. So <laughs> what's the deal on this gyro ball? Yeah, well, when I first started hearing about this, it was uh, the middle of last summer, and the stories were that, that you know, the thing would break uh, three feet. Uh, suddenly, just before it reached the plate, and uh, which is absolutely impossible, you know, from a physics point of view. And and then I I started hearing tales that uh, well maybe it was just two feet and maybe just a foot and a half. You know, and, and finally I uh, hear recently the stories have changed to well it doesn't do anything, <laughs> it just comes in perfectly straight. And um, then the question is, well, why would it be effective? You know, why would it get a batter out? And it reminded me um, of the what we called the backup slider when I was playing. Uh, I, I didn't throw a slider, but those pitchers who did throw a slider would uh, occasionally accidentally throw a slider that didn't slide. It would just go straight. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a pitcher, Jim Hannon, uh, with the Washington Senators, who pitched a three-hit shutout against the Angels one game, and uh, uh, Jim French was his catcher, and Frenchie said that was the best backup slider he's ever seen. So, you know, pitch after pitch came in just perfectly straight, and everybody was expecting, uh, you know, the ball to, to move. And so they, <clears throat> the batter, uh, Hannon was a right-handed pitcher, right-handed batter would start leaning forward, you know, when he saw the spin coming out of out of uh, Hannon's hand. So the batter, in effect, is jamming himself when it doesn't break at all. Exactly. Yeah, and and batters can pick up the slider spin um, uh, fairly easily coming out of the hand if the batter has good enough eyesight. Uh, and so, you know, they're expecting something that's uh, just not going to happen. There's also a diagnostic kind of a, a red dot that the seams 
form right. when the slider is in the correct spin, right? Yeah, if the the pitcher throws a um, a four seam, what they call a four seam fastball, they generally throw the slider with the same grip, and um, this will produce a, a little red dot on the slider coming from a right handed pitcher. It would be up in the upper right quadrant of the mm-hmm. ball. And, and you can actually see this now when they have the super slow motion cameras that oh, yeah. capture the pitch. You can really see that red dot because I, I heard it talked about by batters when I was a kid, but now anybody can really see it. Uh, yes, right. With a new technology, well, you, you can see, uh, you know, all the aspects of the spin and it's really great, I think. Talk about some of the physics of the gyro ball that's related to the, the, uh, direction of the trajectory and the direction of the spin. Oh, okay. Uh, the the um, slider, normal slider, will have a a uh, small angle between the the um, axis, the spin axis, and the direction of the trajectory. And it's this angle between the axis and the trajectory that actually will make the ball uh, move. It'll make it deflect to the to the side. And with the gyro ball, if, if the pitchers are throwing it so that this uh, axis, uh, the spin axis, is perfectly aligned with the uh, trajectory of the ball, so that now it has what they call a, a bullet-like spin. Well, you, you put a spin on a bullet uh, in order to stabilize the bullet, in order to keep it from curving, because you certainly don't want it to to slide. Um, and you, you get the same effect then with a gyro ball, because the, the gyro ball uh, now has that dot. The dot represents the um, the spin axis pole on the face of the ball. Mm-hmm. And that dot now has migrated from the upper right quadrant down to the center of the ball. Right. So, It'll be right dead center. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, that, that little migration is, is hard for a batter to detect. I right, mean, because you'll be detecting it when the ball is just out of the pitcher's hand. Yeah, he has to detect it during that first uh, tenth of a second of the pitch, you know. Uh, and and it's very difficult to see that, but he can see the dot very easily, and so his thinking slider all the way. And and so was the catcher when it was a backup slider, because, you know, the catcher just called for a slider, and so he's, he's starting to shift a little bit to his right, um, from a right-handed pitcher, and uh, he's got to back up his glove now, and that's why it's called a backup slider. Right, because it doesn't break as much as you expect it to. Right. In fact, it shouldn't. It probably it won't break at all if if the uh, dot's right in the center. Right. So the batter sees the dot, assumes slider, then the pitch doesn't break at all, and the batter has gotten himself out of his normal hitting kind of flow. Right. The, the ball's now in on the handle of the bat, and there's not very much sweetness on the handle of the bat. I mean, you've got a really narrow um, uh, part of the bat there. To, and so it's going to probably be a pop-up or a ground ball. So the only way for a, a gyro ball throwing pitcher to truly be effective would be to combine it with a legitimate slider. Yes. And that's where the genius of the, of the uh, coach in Japan comes in because this guy named Tezuka has figured out how the pitcher can throw the slide, uh, throw the um, the backup slider um, deliberately 
And so once you can do that, now you can set up the hitters. And so you can throw a hitter, uh, a couple of really good hard sliders, and then throw them this uh, gyro ball, and uh, you, you've got them set up perfectly. Well, this has been a lot of fun to talk to you. And uh, I know tomorrow, we're talking on Thursday the 29th. Tomorrow is your birthday. Yes. So happy birthday. Well, you thank you. You spent uh, probably too many birthdays in some spring training camp surrounded by other ballplayers. Oh, no, no. It, it was fun. I, I had a lot of fun in baseball. I have no, no regrets at all. <laughs> well, that's great. And uh, so you're retired now. What do you, what do, you do with your days? I spend uh, almost all of my time thinking about baseball and writing about it. <laughs> I've uh, just uh, finished writing my memoirs, and uh, I'll be publishing those uh, sometime this summer and uh, I've been writing a number of articles about uh, of, uh, you know about the science of baseball so so we'll I, I stay busy <laughs> we will definitely look for for that book that's going to come out this summer do you have a title for it yet yes it's called snake jazz snake uh, jazz what does that refer jazz. to it's a it's a baseball term or at least it was when I was playing it just meant all of those uh, wiggly pitches any anything that curves <laughs> so it'd be a, a screwball slider curveball anything that uh, that didn't go straight is snake jazz yeah <laughs> and and that also kind of sums up the path of your life uh pretty much so <laughs> yeah <laughs> dr dave baldwin great to talk to you thank you so much well thank you very much steve for more on Dave Baldwin and to see some of his art, go to snakejazz.com. Say hey, Whirly Mays hits a three-bagger down the right field line. But he's out trying to stretch it to a homer as Rose Burrow tags him on the bottom of the spine. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, in Tommy John surgery, a tendon replaces a damaged elbow ligament. Story two, one in eight odds of a 56-game hitting streak in all of baseball history. Story three, a batted ball travels further in dry air than in humid air. And story four, short men live longer, according to baseball statistics. Time's up. Story one is true. Tommy John surgery involves replacing the elbow's ulnar collateral ligament with a tendon harvested from somewhere else in the body. It's named for pitcher Tommy John, the first person to undergo the procedure successfully and return to the big leagues. During the 2002 and 2003 seasons, more than 10% of all major league pitchers were Tommy John surgery success stories. For an excellent article on Tommy John surgery, Google Tommy John surgery and hit the link in the first page of results for the article in the Baseball Prospectus by Will Carroll and Thomas Gorman, not to be confused with Gorman Thomas, who hit 45 home runs for the Milwaukee Brewers in 1979. Story two is true. You'd need to run all of baseball history eight times to expect to see a 56-game hitting streak. That's according to an article in something called Chance News, a publication devoted to statistics out of Dartmouth College where I once spent a week as a ringer on the math department softball team. You can find that article by Googling Joe DiMaggio, Hitting Streak, and Standard Deviation altogether. The Chance News article is on the first page of results. Stephen Jay Gould also dealt with the statistical unlikelihood of the DiMaggio hit streak in his book Triumph and Tragedy in Mudville. He discusses calculations that showed that for a greater than even chance that even a 50-game streak should have occurred, you'd expect to find 52 lifetime 350 hitters in the baseball encyclopedia. There are, in fact, only three 
Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, and Shoeless Joe Jackson. And story four is true. Analysis of the large, century-old database of Major League Baseball players indicates that short men live longer. That's according to research by San Diego Systems Analysis Thomas Samaras, who has widely published on this topic. Possible explanations include fewer body cells in which to suffer cancer-causing DNA damage in short men and smaller forces involved in impact injuries. The bigger they are, the harder they really do fall. All of which means that story three about batted balls traveling further in dry air than in humid air is totally bogus. Because although humid air may feel heavy to us, it's actually less dense than dry air, with water molecules displacing heavier oxygen and nitrogen molecules. So the ball should go further in humid air. And those sunny, dry, high-pressure systems that you love to sit through a game in. Actually, mean more air pressure holding the ball up. Of course, lots of guys just can't hit under pressure. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website www.siam.com, and the daily Siam podcast, Sixty Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.